0: So as I finish my preaching assignment here today as interim pastor at Providence, I just want to say how thankful I am for all of you uh, and how much it's been a blessing to, to serve here in the past several months. And I am beyond excited to be able to stay here and serve this body. Uh, so thank you for giving me and my, my family that opportunity. So th- this, this has been a, a roller coaster year. Uh, we began This year, January 2nd, uh, with the news that we we would have a baby coming. And then a week later, uh, you get uh, something happen to you that you don't want to have happen to you right after you find out you're going to have a a baby. Uh, And then a few months later, the Lord and His providence brought us uh, together. And uh, like I said, that's a great name for a church, Providence Baptist Church. Um, So it's— it's been a, a crazy roller coaster of a year, uh, but it uh, started sideways, but it just the, the progression of it getting better with the birth of our son, J.D., and then now with uh, being able to, to serve here, uh, the news of, of being able to do that. So thankful to the Lord, thankful to the Lord for, for you and all of your encouragement over the past uh, year or so. So it's uh, just been a, been a joy, and I will never forget this, this year at all. So... Uh, With that said, let's let's bow together and uh, praise the name of the Lord and ask his blessing on the opening of his word. O Lord, our God, may you open our eyes to the riches of your word. May we taste and see that you are good. Strengthen our faith as a church. Give salvation to those who don't know you who are here today. Or for us that believe on you, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. And we pray that your name we may be blessed. In Christ's name. Amen. Did you notice something about all the songs we were singing this morning? Did you notice what is what was not mentioned? And did you notice what is mentioned well there wasn't mentioned Jesus' birth his humble entrance into the world nothing about mary or joseph or shepherds nothing about jesus coming to this earth a couple millennia ago when 18th century english pastor and hymn writer isaac watts wrote the poem called messiah's coming and kingdom it was based off his meditations off psalm 98 Um, It was not inspired by Christmas, nor was it necessarily meant to be sung at Christmas. He wrote it to inspire joy in the remembrance of Christ's second coming, when he will rule the world with his saints and reverse the curse of all creation. Well, this poem, over the next century, went through several rearrangements. It was put to a tune, and it comes to us today as the song, Joy to the World. You'll notice on today's worship guide, on the front, is my favorite line of this hymn. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So Take some time today and ponder that, that line. Think about that. But why do we sing a song at Christmas time that has nothing to do with Christ coming to this earth as a lowly baby? Well, this song paints the picture of another part, the often forgotten part of the Advent season, the second Advent. We don't just celebrate his first coming, but we look forward to his second coming. You see, the, the Christian life is a life that lives between two of Christ's appearances. We will look back at his first and likewise look forward to his return. This looking at the past and looking to the future affects our present lives in every way. But how? Why should we be consumed about not only his first advent, but also his second? And not necessarily consumed with the details, necessarily of what happens before. We can get quickly derailed on that pretty quickly. But we should be consumed with what all Christians of all times have believed and is perfectly stated at the end of the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This morning we will look at Revelation 21, 1 through 8. So please turn in your Bibles to the last section of all the Bible. Revelation 21, 1 through 8, and its contents are not side doctrines or secondary issues. These are of essential importance as our, in our lives as Christians. And the fact that it is often forgotten in the Christmas season, which has always been a part of the Christmas season, is a travesty. So please turn in your Bibles to the end, to Revelation 21, 1 through 8. And this passage will show us that when Christ comes again, God will raise us and renew all creation. He will also bring our joy into completion. And then we'll see why all this matters for us today. But first, verses 1 through 4 will show us that when Christ comes again, God will raise us and renew all creation. Look at verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So after all the history of the world, which includes tribulations and the tribulation, it is followed by the consummation of all things in which Christ comes again and brings judgment with him. When evil seems to be in triumph, Christ appears behind evil's back, and just like he cleared the temple with with a whip because of all the evil practices, he will clear out all the world of its evil. He will not annihilate, but he will eternally judge all evil. And that the evil ones, the Satan, demons, and all those who do not bow the knee to Christ will not cease to exist, but will be eternally separated from God and his people. He will then, with his people, reign forever. And that brings us to this passage in Revelation 21. And John, as part of this vision that God has given him, has seen a new heaven and a new earth. He sees a new creation. The first creation has died, but it has been resurrected. It's not a demolition and then a new building. It will be a recreation, a refurbishment. Just like these bodies will be raised, not done away with, but raised to indestructibility, so will a new heaven and new earth. The old earth and heavens, as the Apostle Peter says in his second letter, will be burned up and purified. And then we will see, as here today, that it will be resurrected, reconstructed as new. The effects of the curse will be no more. So can, you, can you believe all the destructive effects that, to the cosmos, our sin has brought? And it's truly cre- incredible, but it's not near as incredible as what the Lord's going to do in the reconstruction of creation. Now, it says there will be no sea, but there will be a river, And as uh, chapter 22 says. This will be a reconstruction, after all, not an exact copy of the old. But then John sees something descend from heaven, the new Jerusalem, the eternal dwelling place of God's people. The city will come down as a bride is adorned for her wedding day. Now, it's not to be confused with the church, which is also described as the bride. It's the dwelling place of the church. Now, John is speaking here in terms of the, the beauty and majesty of this city, our future home and that it is like a bride who has gotten ready for her wedding day, a wedding day she's been waiting on for millennia after millennia. Now John goes from seeing, seeing, to now hearing. He hears a great voice call out. And this great voice is from the throne. This is the voice of God. What does he say? The tabernacle or tent of God is with man. Of course, the ESV translated as dwelling place, but it paints the picture of when when God was at the tabernacle among Israel while they were on their way to the land promised to Israel. He was in their midst. Now, of course, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, but his special presence was with his people. But back in the days of Israel, this would come and he would come and go. But here in the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, he is staying put. He will tabernacle with them. It's the same word he uses in the previous sentence. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he their God. Up until then, we have just had appetizers of God's special presence. But in the new Jerusalem, we will get the whole feast. And what are the products of God's particular, eternal, special dwelling with his people in the new earth? As our God. Now, now, it's particularly difficult to read this without welling up in tears, is it not? But he will do what? What's he going to do? He will wipe away every tear of ours. And why do we have tears? Because of the reality of death. Death. Death is our greatest enemy. It's our greatest fear. Death is the consequence of sin, for the wages of sin is death. And how will he wipe away our tears? He will wipe away all death. And because there is no more death, there is no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. All things, things are gone because the curse is gone. Sin is gone. Therefore, sin's consequences are gone. The first earth has passed away. The first earth, which was created good, with, but with the possibility of corruption. However, the new earth is created great with the impossibility of corruption. For many of you, 2022 has been a sad year, a tragic year, a frustrating year. Revelation 21, Christ's return, shows us that this time of grief which we all have, are having, or will experience is temporary. It is temporary. The pain is real. The sorrow is unbearable. However, we know because of the promise of God, all these things are temporary. It's going to end one day. If the Lord tarries, I'm going to die. You are going to die. I don't look forward to that. But I'm going to be raised, my body will be in the ground temporarily. My soul will be with the Lord, but there will be temporary as we await the resurrection of our bodies. It's temporary. Pain is temporary. Sadness is temporary. But joy is eternal. For those of us who've lost loved one this year, something is missing. There's an absence that no words can describe. And when someone dies, there is an absence. Something is missing. The fact that Christ is raised and we will be raised, and that that those in Christ will live with Him and with each other for eternity assures us that that void, that missingness, will be filled again. It's not an eternal loss. We will be in the presence of our God and in the presence of all our loved ones in Christ. And he will wipe away some of our tears? No, he will wipe away all our tears. Why? Because death will be no more. We can have assurance of this hope. Why? Because when Christ comes again, God will bring our joy into completion. Look at verses five through eight. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The same one, the one who sits on the throne, makes several pronouncements. He is making all things new. Nothing of the old order will be around, no old wineskins. Every single aspect of the cosmos will be renewed. Just like every aspect of our humanity will be redeemed, as we saw last week, every speck of creation will be renewed as well. All of it was corrupted, so all of it will be made new. He then tells John to write these things down. Why? Because these pronouncements are faithful and true. They are fact. They are reality. Every utterance is reliable. It is certain. In verse 6, Hebrews states it in a different way. He says, it is done. These things are completed. They are definite. They are unconditional. They aren't Maybes or could-be's or possibilities. No, these things are declared done. So for all those who know Jesus, our hope is in the unconditional and definite promise of God. And this one who's speaking from the throne describes himself as the Alpha and Omega. The Alpha being the, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and Omega, the last letter. An interesting and fancy way of saying the beginning and the end, the eternal one. He says, also those who thirst, he will give the water of life without cost. Now, does that language sound familiar to you? If you remember from the Gospel of John in chapter 4, verses 13 through 14, it records Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman. He says to the woman, everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of Jacob's well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This Jesus is the same one speaking here. He gives to all who call upon Him the eternal water of life, and this without payment, which is an interesting statement. Why? Because it has to be without payment. We cannot pay for it. We cannot pay for this. It's impossible. It has to be given. It can only be given. It can only be given by the one who earned It's. we know it's not cheap but it's free to all who believe but what all is given well verse 7 answers that for us look at verse 7 again the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son The conquering one, the one who conquers, will have this heritage. What heritage? And who is the conquering one? Well, the heritage is Christ's possession. All of this new creation, all of its dominion is his. He is the heir of all kingdoms and authorities. He owns all. All that John saw in verses 1 through 2 is his, and he is the true conquering one. But is Jesus talking about Himself here in verse 7? We must look back at the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 through 4. It's the same language he uses here. He says in the beginning of chapter 2, speaking of the seven churches. To the church in Ephesus, the Holy Spirit says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the church in Smyrna, The Holy Spirit says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the church in Pergamum, the Holy Spirit says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the church in Thyatira, the Holy Spirit says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. To the church in Sardis, the Holy Spirit says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. To the church in Philadelphia, the Holy Spirit says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And finally, to the church in Laodicea, the Holy Spirit says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Yes, Jesus is the conquering one, but the conquering one also describes all those who follow the Lamb. All those who persevere in the trials of the Christian life. All those who by faith receive Christ's righteousness and his atonement he purchased on our behalf that's us, church. If you are indeed Christ, that is you. We who are clothed in the righteousness of the conquering one will with him conquer and partake of his inheritance. that will be ours as well. Now, the flip side of that, in verse 8, lists all the non-conquering ones, all of those hypocrites, all those who don't receive Christ as Lord and Savior, all those who continue in their rebellion. Look at the list here again, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see here a few categories here that often describe those who were in the churches, physically with the gathering. Who they truly were was revealed. It's not necessarily just describing those who are the despicable outsiders, but includes all those who are hypocrites. Now, a cursory reading may have have us to believe that this describes Sodom and Gomorrah-type sinners, which does include... But as we look at the book of Revelation and John's other letters, it's might likely also describes those with a close affiliation with the church. Take a look at the list here. The cowardly. Notice the language of those who inherit Christ's new world. It is those who persevere or who conquer. Those who remain steadfast. The cowardly describes those who shrink from persecution and deny the Lord. Again, this is those who are likely false confessors, but they were confessors of Christ at one time. The faithless are the, are the same. Those who fell in love with the world and not, do not love Christ. This almost has a, a parable of the soils type of feel to it. The detestable and the sexually immoral describe those whom John and Jude pointed out as those hypocrites who say they know Christ but walk in unrepentant licentiousness. Same goes for magicians and idolaters, those who forsake the true God for doctrines of demons. Murderers here could refer to, the, to uh, what John says in his first letter when he says in chapter 3, verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And then, last in the list, all liars. Well, John describes in that same letter that anyone who says he is without sin is a liar. All that to say is we can't look at this list and think, oh, those are just the foul people that are obviously are sinners. Now, this speaks to the hypocrites, those who have an exterior of righteousness, those who have, have supposed Christian values or are part of a Christian community but have no evidence of regeneration. They're hypocrites, have a veneer of godliness, but inside are filled with dead man's bones. But one of the great things about the new Jerusalem, the new creation, is that all hypocrisy is done with. We will know each other completely and be completely known, we will love each other completely and be completely loved. God will do something forever about wickedness and deceit. And listen, there will never, ever be the possibility of sin, error, death, sadness, and strife in the new creation. It will be wiped out forever, done away with. The chasm will be eternally separating. As much as this cosmos is cursed— which we see every day. The blessing that will be on it for eternity will be magnificently better. We praise God for that. Now, if you think that this list of those who will not inherit the new Jerusalem describes you, you say, Daniel, this is me. I I am a liar. I have hate in my heart. I love things rather than God. Or I'm I'm scared to death about becoming a Christian because I may lose friends. Or I've heard the gospel message, but it's just it's just not for me. Never thought it was for me. Well the good news is that you are alive today, and he gives the gospel to sinners. The gospel is for sinners. And listen, what separates these eternal dwellers of hell from eternal dwellers of the new earth is the work of the gospel. It's not you. It's not in you. It's not in them. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So trust in Christ's death for you. Trust in his resurrection. Confess your sin to him and receive Christ as Lord. And that, my friend, is how you inherit the new kingdom. It's not from anything you did, but by receiving God's gracious gift of the gospel. And, Christian, let your assurance of this inheritance, this confidence, and this salvation be solely on the finished work of Christ. He is the one making all things new, not you. He is the one who has declared it is done, not you. He is the one who gives wa- the water of life. He gives, we receive. We don't gain any merit from God, but Christ earned this inheritance, and he shares it with whomever he wills. And all those who believe in his name share in his glory. They share in His glory. We are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. And He justifies sinners by His mercy and grace. So don't leave here and forget that. And remember this remember this conquering language that God uses to describe us in Christ, it's perseverance language. No one struts into the kingdom of God unscathed. You will walk with a limp into the kingdom of God. Of course, that limp will be fixed, but you will walk with a limp to it. The Christian life is a brutal life. Trials, temptations, tragedies, tribulations are a mark of the life of the Christian. All legitimate children of God will share in the sufferings of Christ. That's a promise. Just as eternal life is a promise, suffering for His name is one as well. If you remember Philippians 2, 29 through 30, when Paul says, it has been granted or given to you that you will not only believe in Him, in Christ, but you will also suffer for His sake. It's given your eternal life and given your suffering for His sake. Suffering is the road to glory. But again, again, the suffering is temporary. The glory is eternal. We as Christians not only suffer just for being human beings in a fallen world, We suffer in ways in which every human being does, and that's that's enough as it is. But on top of that, we suffer because we are outcasts in society as Christians. We are slandered because we don't go the path of contemporary culture. We lose jobs because we will not compromise on what God's Word says. We lose friends and family. We are ridiculed. But remember this repetitive statement, All of this is temporary. It's temporary. As you get older, you you realize how fleeting this present life is. I'm not old yet, uh, but I'm discovering how fast time is. But it was crazy. I, I still think of 2002 as just a year or so ago. 2002 was 20 years ago. It still blows my mind. That was 20 years ago, two decades ago. T- time is, is a vapor, it, it, it's a mist. It truly is. But so are these present sufferings. They're gone, they're missed. Revelation 21 teaches us that when Christ comes again, God will eternally, eternally, not temporarily, eternally dwell with, his pe- with us, His people, by raising us with the eternal, indestructible body, by renewing all creation, and thus bringing our joy into completion. Now, does this mean that we just become heavenly-minded and no earthly good? By no means. Those who are truly heavenly minded are the most earthly good. How so? Will we live out what we truly hope for? Our hope rests in Christ and what he has accomplished and what we have in store for us in the future. You live out what you hope for. I long for the day when sin is no more. Don't you? So because of that, do I live a life of sin and debauchery? No. I constantly seek to, put, to de- put it to death in my life because I long for the day when it ceases. The new earth will be one of eternal peace and love. Don't you long for that? So do I walk every day in strife and hate? No. No because my Savior loves me so and He gives me peace and we will all have eternal peace with Him. I extend this love to others and I'm a peacemaker. The new Jerusalem will be a just and righteous city. I long for that, don't you? So do I put up with injustice and wrongdoing today? No. Although... We will never see perfect justice in this present world. I seek to live justly. We should all seek to live justly and influence our community and what is right and what is good. Christians are not to be escapists. No, we penetrate the darkness with the light of heaven. Because if that's what we truly long for, we live out what our desires are. And, you know, there is a present picture of this new Jerusalem. What is it? The local church. The local church is the embassy of this kingdom. It is Christ's community where we love and serve one another. We worship God through the word preached, through the ordinances observed, and God's praises are sung. We fellowship together in diverse harmony, though, yes, and perfectly now, but the church is the appetizer to the great feast we have awaiting us. And if this place described in Revelation 21 is your heart's desire, then so will your desire be for the local church. Look again at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things... New. as we continue to celebrate this Christmas season remember this important but often neglected aspect of the Advent he's coming again John draws this book to a close with these words in Revelation 22 verse 20 he who testifies to these things says surely I am coming soon Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, how we long for this day. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin that we have in Jesus. Lord, you have shown grace. You are the one who is the just one, the the gracious one, the righteous one, who doesn't sweep away evil, but deals with evil eternally, but gives grace to sinners as well, a perfect display of your justice and mercy. And Lord, give us, and Lord, guide us to live lives in light of our hope and your unconditional promise. Amen.